Last week we discussed the extent to which understanding a posseik and their goal depends not just on understanding the types of decisions that they make, how they come to reach those conclusions, but also to understand the audience that they are speaking to, and therefore the language they must use, the organizational structure they use, and the modes of communication and perhaps technology they use to convey their psak. Everything we said last week applies both to the formulation of halachic codes, which are meant for a general audience, which are meant to dictate the approach to halacha in general, and to, shall we call them, chuvot, or localized and personalized psakim. And therefore, we can learn much about the audience, for example, of Penine Halacha, of Rev Malamud, from the fact that he writes a code, but in addition to publishing it in hard copy, he provides his writings online for free in multiple languages, publishes his books in multiple languages, and annually has a sale for shuls and for schools to purchase a copy of all of his books in Hebrew and another language of your choice for a nominal fee. And all of this indicates that he understands that his audience... is not only the Hebrew-speaking audience, but is audiences around the world who can't necessarily read the original. It's a community who appreciates the decisions being online and being accessible through that media. And other halachic works that are written only in hard form, um, in hard copy, in books, and written, let's say, in Rashi's script, are meant for an audience that is not as tech-savvy, more comfortable with the rabbinic uh, writing style, etc. And the same is true of chuvot. One learns a lot about who chuvot are oriented at. If chuvot, again, are published as chuvot in books, and primarily accessed through hard copy, or Poskim who publish one-line Chuvot on Shut SMS, Chuvot online, obviously the audience of these two communities is drastically different. But there is another element that applies somewhat to codes, but I think much more to chuvot, or shall we say, personalized psakim. And that is not just the general decisions of what language do you use, but how do you convey your decision? What rhetoric do you use? What type of language do you use when formulating a halachic position? 
And here, I would like to contend the act of Psak in general, and certainly when it comes to specific questions and answers, is in the high sense of the word, in the Aristotelian sense of the word as it were, um, inherently political. And I know that the word politics often has negative connotations, but here, as I've discussed over the last few weeks, I don't mean this in a negative sense at all. What I mean is as follows. The goal of a good posaic is not just to clearly articulate a halachic decision for those people who happen to care what the posaic says, but is to respond to the person that is asking a question to respond to the community that one is responsible for in a way that will most likely make it, that 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 community will follow the halachic decision or policy decision that the posaic is articulating and be comfortable with the decision that is being made. That's part of psaq. Part of Psag is being able to be persuasive, to try to ensure that people will do what you believe they're supposed to do, and perhaps what even they believe in theory they should be doing. And as I said, I mean in this sense that Psag is political in the Aristotelian sense. And here I point to comments that Aristotle makes in Rhetoric chapter 1. And there he notes that he's discussing the role of rhetoric in politics, and he makes certain comments that I think are very helpful to understand what Psak, in its best form, can and must be. And he writes that of the modes of persuasion furnished by the spoken word, there are three kinds. The first depends on the personal character of the speaker. The second, on putting the audience into a certain frame of mind. The third, on the proof or apparent proof provided by the words of the speech itself. And he notes that in order to persuade people, there are three things that are relevant. Who is speaking? How good are they at getting the audience to think in a certain way and feel a certain way? And the third is the argument itself. And if you think about these three elements and how critical they are to Psaac, You'll understand why I think that Psak is political in the good sense of the word. Puskim, that tend to be more influential, are people that are trusted, are trusted to be good people, to be sincere people, to care about both halacha and the people that they are ruling for the people that they are issuing halachic decisions for, people that are poskim that are perceived as being wise and sincere and caring are more likely to A, have people turn to them, and B, to be able to actually shape the halachic decisions of a community. The story is, is, uh, is told that when Ramosha Feinstein was asked how he became the preeminent postsec in America. 
He answered simply that people asked him. They liked his answers. So they went back to him and the word spread and more people asked him. There is no formal appointments of posseik. People become poskim because people turn to them. Because they trust them. And therefore, part of what makes someone a poseik is simply who are they and do people care what they say because they trust that they have a grasp of halacha, a good understanding of how the Torah should work, integrity, and do they care about the people such that people want to go back to them. The second thing that Aristotle notes, which is that you put the audience in a certain frame of mind, I think is also true. And again, I think, as I mentioned last week, a lot of these issues have become clearer or perhaps been brought into different focus as we see these psakim coming out from various poskim across the world on the issues related to the coronavirus. And here it's clear that poskim don't just want to argue and say, Asur Mutar. Poskim who continue to tell their communities that even after the government has said to return to that you could return to religious worship with groups of ten or more rabbis and community and community leaders who want to convince their congregants not to join these minyanim. It's not enough to just say asur, but if you look at the language they're using, they're emphasizing how dangerous it is, how halachat standard for sakanat nefashot, for pikuach nefesh, is not the same necessarily as the government. And it's okay, it's avodah Hashem for you to stay home and keep yourself healthy and keep yourself safe. And don't think that your obligation is what you think it normally is to go to Minyan, as important as that is, etc., etc. And here it's clear that the goal of the poskim is not just to say asur mutar, but if they believe that it's dangerous and they believe they're talking to people who are sincere about tefillah and want to jump on every opportunity to daven with a minion and it's still not safe, so then those poskim need to not just say asur mutar, but they need to get people in a certain state of mind. They need to get them to feel the danger, to feel okay with not going to Minyan, with feeling that that's not, in a case when it's dangerous, not a kula, so to speak, but a chumra and pikuach nefesh, it's the right thing to do, it's religious, it's the religious obligation of that moment, in order to make sure that people are going to listen, they have to get them into that, that headspace, and to make sure that they get into that headspace, and realize that the reason they're doing it, and not going to Minyan, when they're not going, is not because minion's not important, but because it is important, but there's yet a more important value, the postgame need to pay attention not just to what they say, but how they say it. The third point that Aristotle makes, that psak, sorry, not psak, obviously he doesn't see good psak, but persuasion is about the argument that is made. So that is what we classically understand as psak. That people are compelled by a good argument. If you can show me the sources and you can articulate the way in which this is true and it follows from the Gemara and it follows from the Rishonim and from the Acharnim and it accords with the Minhag and it, 
It's a fair understanding of the reality to which halacha is applied. And one explains the potential sharat chak that exists and extenuating circumstances and articulates a clear position that takes into account all the factors that we've discussed. Then one can convince others of the truth of their position by articulating that argument. But again, it's that third element that we all understand is part of Psak. But I think we often forget that as important to the implementation of Psak is those first two. Is the other modes, the other factors that persuade people to follow a decision which is who is talking and how do they talk and what frame of mind can they get the person into to make sure that they're more more likely to listen to take another example eating on Yom Kippur when someone is sick for many people the thought of eating on Yom Kippur is Something they cannot fathom. If their posseik tells them, you are sick. According to your doctor, if you eat, don't eat on Yom Kippur, you'll be in danger. And the halacha tells you, eat on Yom Kippur. And leaves it at that. So there are many tragic cases in which the person simply won't listen. They know what the rabbi said. Maybe intellectually they can understand it. But emotionally, the notion of eating on Yom Kippur is so hard that they won't do it. If the posik just leaves it and says, look, I told them the halacha, let them do what they want. So they may have given the correct halachic answer. But if that person, emotionally, isn't ready to accept it, and therefore fasts on Yom Kippur, and ends up dehydrating or in the hospital... To a certain extent, that is on the shoulders of the posaic. Because if a posaic thinks that their responsibility ends with articulating the decision and doesn't extend to attempting to persuade, to make sure that the person does the right thing, then they've been derelict in their responsibility. And again, as I said, one has seen this in the language used by the poskim who want to encourage the communities to either listen to the government or be even stricter than the government in terms of going to Minyanim, they don't just leave it at saying, Asur Mutar. What they do is they try to persuade and get people to understand that they know it's hard and they know that they value tefillah and we all value tefillah together and to really empathize and hope that it comes across in their chuvot so that people will feel comfortable not going to Minyan. And what I think this points to is the extent to which a good posaic is not just good at reading the sugyot, but is good at gaining the trust of people and getting into the right state of mind and empathizing in such a way that when they articulate their decision, they do it in such a way that the people can accept it, will feel that it's right, it'll resonate with them, and even if it's hard, that they will be able to do it. 
To summarize some of his ideas, let me continue in that paragraph that I began with by Aristotle. Persuasion is achieved by the speaker's personal character. When the speech is so spoken, as to make us think him credible. We believe good men more fully and more readily than others. This is true generally, whatever the question is, and absolutely true, where exact certainty is impossible and opinions are divided. Right? He notes that it's always important who's talking. But when something is unclear, and halakha, this is always true, it is a million times more important that we trust the posaic. He continues, this kind of persuasion like the others should be achieved by what the speaker says, not by what people think of his character before he begins to speak. It is not true, as some writers assume in their treatises on rhetoric, that the personal goodness revealed by the speaker contributes nothing to his power of persuasion. On the contrary, his character may almost be called the most effective means of persuasion he possesses. And I think we all know this to be true. That the people that we listen to are the people that we trust. And even if they don't say it in an inspirational way, and we see that they're fatigued and exhausted, and they didn't articulate perfectly, if we've already built trust with that person, it'll persuade us. We'll know that it's the right thing. He continues, Secondly, persuasion may come to the hearers when the speech stirs their emotions. Our judgments when we are pleased and friendly are not the same as when we are pained and hostile. It is towards producing these effects as we maintain that present-day writers on rhetoric direct the whole of their efforts. This subject shall be... And he goes on. And then he says, Thirdly, persuasion is effective to the speech itself when we have proved a truth or an apparent truth by means of the persuasive argument suitable to the case in question. There are then these three means of effecting persuasion. The man is to, to be in command of them must, it is clear, be able to one, reason logically, two, to understand human character and goodness in their various forms, and three, to understand the emotions, that is, to name them and describe them, to know their causes and the way in which they are excited. But then he notes it thus appears that rhetoric is an offshoot of dialectic and also of ethical studies. Ethical studies may fairly be called political. And for this reason, rhetoric masquerades as political silence. And the professors of it, as political experts, sometimes from want of education, sometimes from ostentation, and sometimes owing to other failings. As a matter of fact... It is a branch of dialect and similar to it. As we said at the outset, neither rhetoric nor dialect is the scientific study of any one subject, any one separate subject. Both are faculties of providing arguments. Now, I've provided several contemporary examples because they're so on all of our minds, I think, recently with the true vote and decisions that are being issued in the context of the coronavirus, where we understand how important it is for Poskim to not just say their decisions, but to be constantly, to constantly have their finger on the pulse of the community and make sure that they're making it clear that they understand the risks, that they're listening to the medical uh, community, that they understand the pain and the isolation that their community is feeling. We focus on some small ones, the question of, of Minion. But this became even more evident in the ways that Poskim formulated their true vote. Not just the decisions they made, but the way they formulated their true vote. 
about Zoom Sidarem or keeping your phone on in case someone is lonely and the like for Seder night, etc. Each psaac that was issued, as much as the content was important, who was saying it was important, and their ability to convince people that they really not just understood the halachic issues, but the human issues, that they empathized, that they sympathized, that they were there with the people asking the questions. All of that was as critical to their message being effective and acting as psaac and getting people to follow the decision that they felt needed to be followed as the content and the argument, the halachic argument that they made. I want to point to a few examples where I think this is also evident in several contemporary great po- or recent great poskim. One of the examples that I think is the most powerful appears in the Tzitzeliezer. The Tzitzeliezer is famous for many of his chuvot, but one of his well-known psakim was his rel- the relative leniency in his psakim about abortion. Now, abortion is, by definition, a painful topic. And someone who's turning to a posaic and asking whether they can abort a child is obviously in pain, especially when that's in light of a potentially devastating situation that's led them there, whether it be knowing that the child has a disease or potentially has a disease or the family can't handle it etc. What I want to highlight is the following. In general, there are two approaches in the Rishonim as to whether a unborn child is considered alive and therefore whether an abortion in any way, shape, or form is understood as murder. Now, everyone agrees in Halakha that an unborn child is not the same as a living person. That's agreed upon. The punishment, at least for Jews, is not the same for an abortion as for murder. But there is still a machloket between the Rishonim. <coughs> there is a school, let's call it for now the Ramban, who says <coughs> that an unborn child is not yet alive. And that's why it's not considered murder to abort a child. And the reasons that it is not something we would jump to is because it is a potential life. Maybe it, there's an element of chavala and damage. To explain why in another halacha we say that one can violate Shabbat to save an unborn child. The Ramban notes to defend certain posi- positions in the Gionim that the Gemara itself says there are two reasons one would violate Shabbat. Many, but two which he believes are accepted. One is Bechai Bohem, that one can live, must live through the mitzvot, but he thinks that this doesn't apply to an unborn child who, according to him, is not yet considered alive. And therefore he says the reason is a second argument. 
There's permission to violate one Shabbat in order to have other Shabbatot be kept. And therefore, while an unborn child may not yet be alive, the unborn child is a potential life and therefore will be able to keep Shabbat and therefore it's legitimate to violate Shabbat to save the child. With this, the Ramban explains why, on the one hand, it's mutter, as I said, to violate Shabbat to save an unborn child. But why, if a mother is in danger, one is um, because of the uh, the pregnancy, one is allowed to abort the child before the child is born. The Rambam, on the other hand, believes that at some level, the unborn child is indeed already alive. And that is why one can violate Shabbat to save the unborn child. So how does the Rambam explain the halacha? That if the unborn child is endangering the mother, one can abort the child. So the Rambam says that it's a case of rodef. There's a category in halacha of a pursuer, someone who is trying to kill somebody else, and even though obviously the unborn child is not doing this intentionally, the reality is that the unborn child is endangering the mother's life, and therefore, even though he thinks that the unborn child is at some level alive, he thinks it's permitted to abort the child to save the life of the mother. The Tzitzeliezer has a very lengthy tshuva, we go through this analysis and much, much, much more and rules essentially in line with the Ramban's school that abortion is not murder and therefore believes that one can be lenient in more circumstances than one would be able to were one to Paskin like the Rambam. In this tshuva, the Tzitzeliezer, as is his normal way, is very thorough, very detailed, somewhat clinical in the way he analyzes the sugya. Contrast this with Chelek Yud Gimel, Siman Kuvbet, where he was asked directly <coughs> about whether a couple who has been determined that their unborn child will have Tay-Sachs, whether you could abort the child. And here for a moment, I want to, you to get into the Tzitzeliezer's mind. The Tzitzeliezer could say, look, like I said in the earlier tshuva, which he indeed references in the second tshuva, it's a machloket rishonim, the Ramban says that the child is not yet alive, and therefore the standards for aborting it are lower. The Rambam thinks the child is alive. The standards are obviously much higher. But we can like the Ramban. However, if he would simply say that, I'm only imagining that for the average person who isn't necessarily in the Beit Midrash and doesn't know every Rishon in every position, if you were to say to them, look, it's permitted for you to abort the child, but just know that the Rambam thinks that what you're doing is murder, that you're murdering your child, that couple will never be comfortable with, with 
what's already a painful decision. And therefore, the Tzitzeliezer, who thinks that it's correct to say that you should abort the child, needs to come up with an honest way of not just getting the couple the psak that they need, which is its mutar. Again, I'm not poskening here. I'm getting into the mind of the Tzitzeliezer. But he also needs to come up with a way rhetorically to make sure that this couple will be comfortable with the decision that he gives and they won't feel more pain than they already do. And I think if you look at his shuva, you'll see how a good posik is not just one who's willing to go through the sugya and come to a kula if necessary, but is one who knows how to articulate that decision to make sure that those who are listening to him will feel comfortable, will get into that state of mind, as we noted from Aristotle, to be comfortable with the decision when they make it. And the way he does it, and if you read through it, is that he rhetorically makes them so comfortable or as comfortable as you could under the circumstances. And first he starts off by saying, Because in regard to this disease, He goes through, I know what this is. It means that in the first year of life, there will be It'll be terrible. He will, his development will be retarded. Physically and intellectually, there'll be blindness, paralysis, etc. There is no treatment in Kayom Tipul. Specifically, there's no way of saving the child. It's true you could lengthen for a few months. I'm skipping around here. Should you see in this disease which is so terrible and so certain? Right? He, he summarizes the question but goes through the details. I know how hard it is. I know what this means. And he can says, After looking into it in depth, with seriousness, in every side, in every angle. Look at my previous tshuva. In this Unique circumstance. I think under this circumstance, you can even abort up to seven months. So already you see that he spends so much time empathizing, acknowledging he knows how hard it is. So what is he going to do? with the fact that he knows that the Rambam says it's Asr, if he wants to be complete intellectually, so what he does is brilliant. He says, Barur Pashura Davar Galubrin. He said, the halacha, as he paskins the earlier one, is that it's not murder because you're not killed for it. So how does he acknowledge the position? He says, Said, besides for some positions that it's not even prohibited, most posts can say it's only dirabanan. Um, 
etc. And he says, Pay attention. When there's pain and anguish, which will be caused to the mother. The pain and the death is certain. The parents, their eyes are withering away. There's no hope. There's no way of taking the special institution for changing it. Nothing will save the child. Plus the pain of the child himself. If there were any room to be made ill, this would be it. It doesn't matter the pain, the physical, psychological, spiritual. And the, the emotional pain is even worse than the physical one here, etc. He talks to, I believe this is Dr. Steinbring, he says, who knows is better than you? And then he says, The pain, the anguish for this child that won't live anyway is beyond measure, etc. He permits it. So what does he do with the Rambam? Instead of quoting the Rambam, he basically limits his discussion to the world of the Achronim. He said, that which I saw in the Meshachach, meaning that it's essentially murder, he says it's, it's wrong. Because, look at all these Achronim that I have. And if I have to get into the Tzitzeliezer's head, I would suggest that what he's doing as follows. Is, if he were to go through the same analysis, as I said, in his earlier tshuva, what he would say is, I think it's permitted, but the Rambam says it's Asr. But for most people who aren't part of the, for the parents in this situation, they might not know every Rav and every Posek and every Rishon. And if you say the Rambam thinks what you're doing is murder, that's going to just make it worse. So what does he do? If you leave it on the level of the Achronim, so unless people are really initiated, do they know the difference between the Meshachachman, the Tzafnapanech, who he quotes later, you're not, he's not being dishonest. He's just not providing too much information. He's not going to all the background to make it sound scarier than, than, than it already is. And by saying, yeah, there is someone who would think it's more prohibited. There is someone who thinks it might be murder. But you know, it's an achron. It's a meshech which maybe you've heard of, maybe you, you haven't. But it's not like throwing in their face. The Rambam says it. The Rambam says this is murder. Even the way he formulates the argument and the sources he chooses to, to list in this tshuva. Again, he's not dishonest. He tells you, if you want the full analysis, go to the other tshuva. But there's no reason for him to do it here. And in this tshuva, what I think you see is that what made this psak an effective psak is not just the decision he made. But one is that there's clearly 
a relationship between Dr. Steinberg and the Tzitzel Yezer, where there's already pre-existing trust. Two is he makes, he goes through in detail and repeats and makes it clear that he understands what they're talking about, the reality that's driving this question. He's there for them. He feels the pain. And he gets into that situation where he's able to feel and articulate and make it clear that he understands what he's responding to. And that is critical. And three is even how he formulates the arguments. He's, he quotes, he limits the overwhelming sources and he doesn't say it's the Rambam who would say that it's also that it's murder. He with honestly, honesty and integrity, quotes his earlier tshuva, lists some sources here, but makes it clear that the way he views it in the end of the day is that when one gets to the realm of, of modern post-gim to the achronim, he doesn't rule that way. And that, I think, for the average person, would take away the sting of saying it's permitted, but the Rambam thinks it's prohibited, which is the last thing that these parents would want to hear. There are many more examples if... You're interested, I think, an excellent modern example is the Ma'amar Yirat Tehora, which is a Haredi work aimed at the um, at people suffering from OCD, where, again, I think not just the arguments made, but the way that the, the tshuva is formulated is an excellent example of the importance of getting into that headspace and helping people get to the point they need to to follow the decision. But to summarize what we've seen is that I think if you really want to understand Psach, it's not just to think about Psach as Aristotle's third element of persuasion, which is make a good halachic argument and that's all it is. A good posaic needs to develop trust by being a good person, by being someone that people believe has integrity and cares for the Torah and for the people answering the question. And two, needs to be able, each time they answer a question, especially a hard one, to be able to get the people to the point that they need to be to make it most likely that people will follow the proper halacha. And whether it be something as extreme as this tshuva we've just looked at of the Tzitzel Yezer, or it be the simple case which happens every year of Poskim trying to make sure that people who need to eat in Yom Kippur will be able to get over not just the halachic but the emotional hurdle and do what they need to do to not risk their lives. Or it be these examples you can see over and over, unfortunately, during these weeks that they're necessary of community rabbis trying to convince their constituents to be safe and to stay home when necessary, even when it's hard, all of that indicates how much psak is so much more than just the argument made, but is making sure that the posseg is able to get those listening to him to the point where they'll be able to accept it and be convinced, not just of the theoretical truth, but that it'll be able to resonate with them so they get to the point they need to be. And as we saw with last week, this highlights the extent to which halacha in psak is not just about that theoretical halachic decision, but to fully understand it, one must remember that there's always an audience, there's always real people that these decisions are being conveyed to, and understanding psak and what it takes to be a good posaic requires understanding 
the ways in which a posseh communicates his decisions in effective ways that will be true to the humanity and the human beings on the other side who are asking and listening to the halachic advice.